Welcome to the Lighthouse Community Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope today's teaching will encourage you in your faith and help you develop an increasing desire to walk with God. Let's listen in. <laughs> it's good to see you all here this morning. Uh, my name is Matt uh, Alt-Feltis, and uh, I am one of the pastors uh, here at Lighthouse, and it's my privilege to bring God's Word to you this morning. If you're joining us online, we want to say a special welcome uh, to you and glad that you're able to join us. We hope you'll uh, find the time to join us in person uh, very soon. Um, so glad, glad that you guys are here. Um, I think that if I did a survey of this room, <clears throat> I think it would be fair to say that we would ask, and if I ask the question, um, what do you think the emotional state of our world is? What do you think you would say? Don't say it out loud, just think to yourself, what would you, how would you gauge the emotional state of our world? I'm sure we'd have a number of different responses, and I don't think uh, it would be terribly positive either. <laughs> In a lot of ways, it might be a real challenging sort of thing. You might say tired. Uh, some might take it one step further and say, say weary. Um, some people might go and say we've lost our minds. Uh, some people say it's chaos, uh, a lot of craziness that's happening around us in our world. But let me try to synthesize it down, and, and I understand that it's near impossible to try to boil down the totality of all of it, boiling it down to all that we see in our world and even in our own hearts, and bring it down to one point. But I would say that if we were to try to maybe make a list of the top three things in our world, I would actually suggest that somewhere in there would be stress and anxiety. Can I get an amen to that? <laughs> because it's true. I think all of us feel it on some levels, and, and we find ourselves feeling that stress and that anxiety and that, that pressure, that, that ability for us to, you know, to kind of step into what's happening. I actually found an organization in, in our, um, on, online. It's called the American Institute of Stress. This is a group of people that study stress. That's what they do. And I wonder if it's a stressful job. I don't know if it's a stressful job, but it could be. Uh, but that group works hard, and they study stress, and they, they have their list of what stresses us out on their website. They did a survey back in March. Uh, any idea what the, what the top thing on the list was? Inflation. 87% of people said that they were stressed, they were worried uh, about, about inflation. 81% uh, said, said they, were, they were stressed and worried about supply chain issues or Russia invading uh, Ukraine. And it goes down the chain, it goes down the list of things of global uncertainty, politics, social issues, and so forth and so on and so on. Generation, generationally, we'd probably see the current generation of kids and young adults uh, and some uh, Gen Z and some millennials would say, that it's stress when they can't find their cell phone. Interesting point, and I know I feel that way sometimes too, I'm not just, not just one group, but interesting point is to say that nearly 80% of stressed people showed some sort of physical symptoms of it, physical symptoms of that, of that stress. And they actually concluded that stress is the number one contributor to health issues in our world today. Maybe that doesn't surprise you. Maybe going, I knew that. That's nothing new, um, that kind of thing. But the, yeah, it indicates that we, we are pretty stressed uh, people in our world. What's more is that the research indicates that the stress of the average American is about 20% higher than the global average. And then it went on to kind of diagnose and say, this is how we deal with stress. Any idea what one of them was? Anyone want to take a shot at it? Eating. Yeah. 
That's a big one. Food, comfort food, something that makes you feel good, a good burger, or maybe it's that comfort food, that mashed potatoes, the, you know, that, that stuff, that Sunday afternoon dinner. Um, for Gen Z and millennials, they actually, the number one one for them was, was sleep. Maybe that's for you too. There's actually somewhere in the neighborhood of 50% of people said they don't deal with stress, they just ignore it. <laughs> as though somehow it's ignorable. And get this, this is one that really surprised me. 51% of people actually said that they deal with stress by praying. Amazing, right? I wouldn't have thought that would have been on the list anywhere near that level. But I also read that the current generation of young people is probably the most stressed out generation in the world. And I think it's probably true to say that that would be the case for any of us maybe when we were that age. And I can't think, as I, as I read through this stuff and I read through these stats, I can't think of a more appropriate time in our world, any time for that matter, to be reminded of a very simple truth, and that truth is this, God is our refuge and strength. What an amazing reminder. I need to hear that. My heart needs to hear that every single day. And today we're going to be uh, in between teaching series, as Matt said, and we, uh, I was asked to kind of pick a favorite passage to teach on today. And I said Psalm 46 because it really is one of my favorites uh, chapters in the Bible. And here's why. Because so often we can be so consumed with a sense of being out of control that we sometimes feel stressed and helpless and even hopeless. And then the writer of Psalms are telling us that God is in control and sovereign over it all. He's in control. He has got this, ultimately in control over it all. So we are seeking peace in our stress, peace to overcome it. I'm also, I just want to kind of give you, give you a little heads up here. I'm not going to kind of dissect this passage. We're not going to go like a verse-by-verse verse, uh, linear breakdown of this passage. But what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to kind of give you a blanket to cover the whole thing because what I'm aiming at today is to give you a better lens to look through as we address and deal with the realities of today. A different way, maybe a better lens to see what's happening in our world today. And a little bit of a warning as well um, is that I'm going to be doing kind of a background explanation a little bit in the intro that's really long. And so I'm just going to ask you to kind of bear with me, uh, even humor me here and stay engaged because I think it really matters. And I think it's going to bring a greater understanding uh, for each one of us as we, as we look into, into this. So if you look in your Bibles, you're in Psalm 46. You're going to see at the very top of Psalm 46, there's a title at the very top. Can you, can you see your Bibles there? I'm going to put it up on the screen here. Uh, and it's right there at the top. It says, it says, to the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. So oftentimes when we see that in the Psalms, and you look back through the Psalms, you're going to see lots of them. But oftentimes we look right past that because we're going, that's not the point of the passage. I'm going to read the passage. We get God as our refuge and strength. I want that. But I think this is important here because it actually is saying it's a song from the sons of Korah. And there's something very interesting that come out of looking at the sons of Korah and the history behind them and their story. It gives us a glimpse into why the writer would write this. And so let's look at the background for just, for just a minute. There's a book in the Old Testament, and it's called Numbers. It's the fourth book of the Old Testament. And in Numbers chapter 1, you have begins with the people of Israel. 
And so Israel has been enslaved in Egypt for like 400 years, and God sends a leader by the name of Moses. And Moses' job is, he's, he, what he's doing is he, he's there, and what he's going to do is he's going to take these people into the wilderness to get to the promised land and receive the inheritance of what God has promised them someday. Of course, if you know the story, you know that they spend a, a long time kind of out in the wilderness on, on the way through. And in the first year of their journey, God spoke to Moses, and he basically said, hey, you people don't just get to loaf around and just kind of be followers and kind of wander, although that's what they did. You're going to have responsibilities. You're going to have uh, a role to play uh, during, during this time. So he lays out the responsibilities that God wants for his people. You get to chapter 3 of Numbers, and God tells him that there's a guy uh, there, and Moses knows him. His name is Aaron. And he says, Aaron is a guy that I want you to pay attention to. Aaron, I want him is to be, I want him to be, um, I, I want him to, uh, to uh, uh, set aside his descendants to be the priests, to represent God to the people and the people to God. Basically, he's the mediator between the people and God. That's what we want Aaron, Aaron to do. And he calls out another guy by the name of Levi and all his descendants to be helpers uh, for Aaron, specifically as it relates to the tabernacle, tabernacle uh, for them. And it's not, not some sort of perfect thing, but this tabernacle. And the tabernacle was kind of like this uh, portable church, um, you know, where, where they set it up and they tear it down when they moved um, and so forth like that. And it was intended to be something that could move quickly. It could be set up, torn up, and torn down very, very simply, getting the people involved. But also, whenever it was set up in the camp of the Israelites, it was set up right in the middle of their camp. And so it was very prominent, very clear. It was right there in the middle of it all, um, and, and, and it was there. So the sons of Levi were, were commissioned to set up and transport uh, the tabernacle. Now, the sons of Levi were three guys. There was a guy named Gershon, a guy named Merari, and a guy named Kohath. And each one of them, their descendants and their family had a role in that. So you had Gershon, and he basically was, was the guy who was in charge of the tent itself, the canvas on the outside of the tent. I say canvas, it probably was more like animal skins or something like that. I have this image in my head, and maybe you have one of these. My dad had an old army tent, this green canvas thing that weighs like 500 pounds. I don't know why you would ever have a tent like that, except the thing kept us dry when we went hunting and stuff. But we had this thing, this massive tent. I kind of have this thing, except the temple. Uh, that it was, it was much bigger uh, than, than that. So you had, you had Gershon, who was responsible for the coverings, everything on the outside, the fabric. Then you have, a guy, the, then you have his next son, Merari, and his job was to take care of the structure. And not just take care of it, but to transport it, like Gershon's job was to transport the tent itself. So the beams and the posts and all the things that were basically the skeleton of the temple, their job was to, was, was to transport it and, and take care of that. And then there's Kohath. And Kohath had the responsibility of his, with his descendants to actually take care of the things inside the temple. Inside there, so all of the all of the inside the tabernacle that were there, and so they would actually all the all the all the stuff, the tables and the chairs and uh, the pews, the you know the lighting system, the sounds, all that stuff that went in there was 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 important stuff. Later in numbers, I'm joking about that. There's probably other things that are probably far more important um, in that time. But later in numbers, the verses tell us that all of the instructions were given uh, were given from God, and all the leaders of the tribes of Israel came to Moses and, and offered gifts. And they said, hey, uh, we're with you. I mean, if you know the Israelites, well, they were a bit fickle, so they're with you right now. So we have these gifts that we want to give you. And they gave them two things. They gave them oxen and carts. 
And God, God saw this and said, this is, actually, this is actually an okay thing. He said, it's fine for the carts and oxen to move the oxen. Or is it ox, plural? Anyway, the, the, the big cow with the horns. Anyway, they, they were moving around, and he said, it's okay for them to be used for moving around the tent and the structure. It's okay for that, for that, to, be, uh, for that to be the case. And the instructions were very specific uh, about what they could carry on him. But it was equally specific to Kohath that he was not permitted to use the cart to carry any of the items that they had. They had to carry everything by hand. Everything that they had, the, everything that was, that was inside the temple that, that had to be moved had to be carried by hand. And it was really an interesting thing because, because I think it was intended to be just keep it in front of you. Keep it as something you know that is careful and is not just kind of thrown in the back of a, of a cart or, or, or whatever it may be. So Kohath and his kids had to carry everything by hand, all the holy things, the coverings, the seats. And, and well, read Numbers. It's actually a pretty interesting read. Go back and read Numbers, and you'll see uh, the story of how this goes down. So it seems that Korah... So I'm sorry. So his son's carrying all this stuff there. So uh, and and you know and it kind of kind of came down where where it kind of went a little further. Uh, so Kohath and his kids are carrying all this stuff, um, and it wasn't a small task. And this is kind of where the where the backstory ends. And fast forward a couple of generations, and you have a guy by the name of Korah, who was the grandson of Kohath. So Kohath has a son and a grandson by the name of Korah. He and his sons and friends were carrying all the stuff, and one day they decided that carrying all these instruments and the furniture, as just, it was just too much, and they were done. No more. We're not going to do this anymore. Uh, and, so, um, and it also seems that Korah had his eyes on a different job. Basically said, I don't want to carry this stuff anymore. Actually, what I want to do, I see Aaron, what he does, that looks like a sweeter gig. I want to do that. <laughs> I want to be a priest. And so he, he goes to Moses and, and tells him, and basically Kohath got together about 250 people and basically presented a coup that they wanted to do what, Mo, what Aaron was doing, and that's in chapter 16 of Numbers. So Moses calls them, calls all these men together before God and says, you really want to be priests, huh? Really? That's what you want? Okay, great. Well, let's do it this way. Why don't you go and get a, a Why don't you go and get a censer, which is basically a pot or or a pan, and uh, just like the priests do, and then go get some fire and put that fire inside that censer, just like the priests do, and then go inside the temple and stand before God, just like the priests do. Yeah, let's let's do it like that. That's what that's what we're gonna do, and let God decide between you and Aaron. If you've read the story, you know where this goes. God pulls Moses aside kind of proverbially and warns him and says, hey, make sure you tell all the people that don't go anywhere near the sons of Korah, these, these guys right now. Stay away from them. And don't go near their tents or any of their belongings. Just stay away. And I got to tell you that anytime God says uh, something like that, bad things are coming. And then Moses laid down kind of a challenge to the people because I think there were maybe some people that were watching to see how Moses was going to respond and maybe how God was going to respond in this moment. So Moses looks at the people and he says, he says uh, hey, I, I just want you guys to know that these men standing here against me in God's word, um, they want that job. And these, 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 these men are, um, are there, there's, some, there's potentially some bad things that are, that are coming. But here's what's going to happen is we're going to stand here and as we stand here, uh, um, if these men, they do their thing, if they just die of natural causes, if they die like a normal death, you know, whatever it would be, um, then you'll know that I've got nothing to say. And you don't have to listen to a word I have to say. 
It's okay. But if these men say, oh, I don't know, get swallowed by the earth, then you'll know that I'm actually knowing what God is going to do and that what God's going to say. There's something valuable that I have to say. And the Bible says in, in Numbers, it says that immediately after he said those words, there was no break there. Immediately after he said those things, the earth opened up and 250 men and all of their possessions fell into the earth and the earth swallowed them up. Wow. I'm not sure that I would ever want to stand against God, but that's exactly what it says happened. Now, did God do something? Yeah. <laughs> he definitely did something. I have to imagine in my head a scene from Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? That scene at the end where everything just kind of goes, it's fire and all this stuff going on, that kind of this Hollywood type of scene. Now, we might think that this is the end of the Sons of Korah, but the Bible doesn't tell us that. It tells us a few verses later that some of the sons of Korah actually survived. And they show up here in Psalm 46, like seven generations later. Crazy. A few of them actually made it. Don't let this, don't let this next part give you whiplash, but something that's pretty amazing to me is a guy named David. Um, I would say that he was the first one ever to organize a worship team. He was responsible for the time getting together. He pulled together the orchestra and picked the singers and he picked the songs, and which, many of which he actually wrote uh, in his role. And he called on the sons of Korah to actually write some songs that they would sing. And that's where we get that thing where it says it's a song. And so they wrote this, they would have, have sung this. Interesting trivia here. The Sons of Korah didn't just write this one here, but maybe some other songs that maybe you're more familiar with. Psalm 42, which actually says this, As the deer pants for water, so my soul pants for you. Or how about this one? Psalm, Psalm 84, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord. My soul longs and faints for you. How familiar is that if you've been around worship music for any period of time? maybe 20 years ago, but my guess is that they probably heard them at some point. So we're going to be reading this passage now, and let me give you sort of an outline of this real quick of Psalm 46. It breaks down into three sections. It starts with God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble, therefore we shall not fear, right? It goes there. And then in verse 2, it starts with the word therefore. So read that first verse, and it says that. We'll read it here in just a second. And it says, therefore, anytime you see the word therefore, you say, what's it there for, right? Therefore, the rest of this is true. God is our refuge, therefore it's true. So let's read it together, starting in verse, starting in verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage and the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress." Come, behold the works of the Lord. He has brought desolation on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow, shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. 
three parts. You have verses like two through five, which talk about, the, about raging nature, nature that rages. And then in verse six, it's talking about raging nations, the nations that rage. And then the last part is really talking about the raging of our hearts, raging of our hearts. And I can't help but wonder if the sons of Korah sit down to write this worship song, if in their minds they wander back to the story of their ancestors. I mean, look back at verse two real quick. It says, therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. How about verse 6? Jump down there. It says, The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. I wonder if that was in their minds. And I think it probably was because if you look at chapter 44 in Psalm verse 1, it says, Oh God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. They knew the stories. They'd heard the stories. They knew the truth behind it. And it came out in this song that they wrote. And with that in mind, this is a powerful psalm. It's a powerful psalm. God is to be obeyed. God is to be trusted. He is our strength. He is our shelter, even when the earth is coming apart. Now, you and I, I don't, probably don't have a moment when we've decided to stand toe-to-toe with God in that way like the sons of Kohath did, or the sons of Korah did. But I know that each one of us has moments when we feel like the earth around us is just giving way and crumbling. And I don't know what your circumstances are or what specifically is happening, but I do know that there are times when I just feel like, and maybe you feel like it's just too much. It's all coming apart. It's coming down, and it's not at all what I wanted it to be, whatever it is. This is not at all what I thought it was going to be, God. Uncle, and it says in verse 2, it says, we will not fear. We won't fear. God is there. And at the end of the verses, it gives us a command in verse 10, and it says, it says, be still and know that I am God. And I want to land on that kind of for, for the rest of our time here. I want to land on that, that be still. What does it mean to be still? Does it just mean to stand and not move our feet? Does it mean to, I mean, physically just not move at all, to be completely still? I think that we could, all, we could all define and say that we know what it actually looks like. But I want to tell you that this statement is not about a posture or a physical position, although those things are probably pretty important to this, but it's actually more referring to the disposition of your heart, the disposition of your heart, the posture of your mind and your faith. And if you're listening to this today, and you have said yes to Jesus as your forgiver and leader, and have fully surrendered yourself to his leadership in your life, and, God, and, and the, the God who saves you is also the God who holds you, and nothing can separate you from his love. If that's you, then the disposition we are called to here is trust. Let me show you how. Here's what this means. The actual word for be still is a Hebrew word, and it actually, actually means this. Uh, the, the, the word means uh, to let slack in, to let slack in, to let it drop, to let it sag uh, a little bit. Now, this can also have kind of a negative meaning, too, where someone might have a discouraged heart or something. But here, it's saying to put some slack in your own self-help. Put some slack in your own self-help. It's a very practical way that this is something that we can, we can get our minds around. And most of us are really good at self-help. 
We're really good at it. We're good at diagnosing our own problems. We've got WebMD. We've got places we can go online. We can diagnose our problems and find out what exactly is behind, what's, what ails us. And it's easy for us to step into hard times and the messes of life and take control and to be our own leader in those moments. But, the, but this passage here tells us, it says, let the tension of our circumstances sink down, droop, let there be slack. And when we do this, we create space for God to pick it up and take it on. And let me tell you this, that God holds us. If you are his, you are his. Letting slack is like you, letting, letting slack is like you and God holding on to the same rope at different ends and just holding it and you're pulling. Letting slack actually means we stop pulling. Remember here in this picture that God is holding us and he says, I've got you, and nothing can snatch you out of my hands. You are going to pull, but I'm steady. I'm going to be steady, and I'm going to wait right here for you. It's kind of like me taking a rope and tying it to a big oak tree in my front yard and pulling on it, hoping that somehow I'm going to pull that bad boy down. It is not going to happen. God's saying, I'm there. I can't win, but God will. How do I know this? Because I really think that what it boils down to is humility. So in these verses, we see, nature's ra- we see nature raging. We see nations raging. We see our hearts raging. And you're telling us that the solution is humility? Yes. That's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> Calling us to leave room for God in our struggles. I'll take it one step further and say to give him control. To stop trying to lead our own lives. Because if you're the one who's constantly running to fix, if you're the one who's constantly running to stop or constantly running to control, how can you possibly know the rescue of God? If all we do is be our own Savior, where is God in that? How can you ever truly know the rescue of God if you're constantly being your own Savior? Because if you're the one who's constantly running to do all these things, even in these verses, if you, had all, if you had it all down to one verse in verse one, that he's our refuge and our strength. He's always there when you're in trouble. He's there with us. So let your hearts rest. Be still. Put some slack in your life. And that would be enough, wouldn't it? The kind of rest and peace This kind of rest and peace grows in a heart that's humble enough to love God's leading. Let me say that again. This kind of rest and peace grows in a heart that's humble enough to love God's leading. And for me, I put that that together with truth and authentic peace because humility is required to know God's peace. Here's the reality for most of us. We run around like crazy people trying to be our own peace And maybe this is a lesson that the sons of Korah learned from their fathers. You see, these guys saw how their distant grandfather wanted to take the role leader in his life, and he tried, and guess what? It went really badly. In fact, let me add add to to those points that I just made. I said said that humility is required to know God's, God's leading. I said humility is required to know God's peace. I'll add to this, that humility is required to trust that God knows what he's doing. 
Actually trusting that God knows what he's doing. Because when it comes to pride, we take control and we go, man, God, you don't know what you're doing. Let me, let me, let me show you what it looks like to trust or to, to take control of this. So I've got this. You step back. And we take the slack out of the rope. And we start pulling again. In fact, in Psalm 131, David says it like this in verse 1. He says, oh, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Let me translate that for you. <laughs> I'll interpret it. Things that I can't understand. And let me make a list of you for things that I can't understand. Despite the fact that, yeah, I understand my trade. Yeah, I understand my, my car sometimes. Depends on the car. I understand different things about my life. I can understand these things here and so forth like that. But God's saying there's certain things that are too great for you to truly understand. And let's make that list. I don't know what the future holds. I don't know how my life's going to turn out. I don't know my kid's future. I don't know my kids are going to turn out. I don't know how my business decisions are going to pan out. I don't know if I'm going to get sick or if I'm going to die. I don't know if difficulty is going to come, when it's going to hit. So I leave slack and I trust God's leadership. Be still and know that I am God. What I want, what I know about God is that he is good. And the honest truth is that anything beyond that it's just extra. It's gravy. He's always good. And I think that oftentimes, what oftentimes keeps us is the opposite of humility, which is pride. And pride will always cause us to overvalue what we think and feel. Pride says that I'm thinking, what I'm thinking and feeling and doing are of the highest value. And these verses say, and the nations rage. Everyone has a thought or a feeling or a desire, so there's fights and there's wars. Nobody's willing to step back and go, I don't think I really know. And so we war. I feel certain, but I can't say for 100%. And the pride digs its roots into our hearts and causes division. And this takes us back to stress. The feeling like we need to defend what we think and feel. You see, these verses in Psalm 46 say that God is our strength. Not like the sons of Korah, and, and, and like the sons of Korah, we might say, I don't like that. We look at God and we say, it's not enough, God. I have my list of things that I need, and God, you're clearly not interested in them. And they aren't being fulfilled like I want them to be. So God, you're clearly not doing enough. Then what happens is the human heart when we conclude that God is not doing enough for us or doing the exact thing that we think we need, we seek to fill in the blanks for ourselves. Let me just paint a picture for you of the God who loves you and wants to shape you into what he has in his mind. He uses everything in our lives, and not just everything in our lives, but he did everything to demonstrate that love for you in sending Jesus to die for your sin. The penalty that you deserved to die for, which is your sin. You deserve to die for that. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. What you earn for your sin is death. But God's gift to you is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You deserve to die for your sin. And as we look at this, this picture, God uses everything in our lives to bring about the image of Jesus coming through in you. But didn't Jesus didn't just die for your sins, but he rose from the dead because the penalty for because defeating death was necessary to show that he could overcome what the penalty was. 
And when we start pushing on the areas, when God starts pushing on the areas of my life that don't look like maybe the way I want it to be, we give up and we say, no thanks, God. I don't need that. I don't need it. God shows us strength and leading in our lives, and we push back. Nope, now you've gone too far, God. Because of that, we don't experience the peace of God that comes through his strength. And this is not always true, but in general, we want peace with ourselves and with God. So where does peace thrive? Let me give you three things. Peace thrives in a heart that is humble enough to love God's leading. Peace thrives in a heart that's humble enough to love God's leading. Not just recognize God's leading, not just follow God's leading, but actually love where God is leading us. Secondly, peace uh, that we're talking about here comes out of a devotion to Jesus. True peace comes out of a devotion to Jesus. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, it says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. I believe that is not a Jesus and something else. Sort of like we talked about a few weeks back in the church at Pergamum, where it was Jezebel saying, yeah, it can be, it can be Jesus and something else. It can't be either. Same thing here. Jesus is your only peace. And I'll say it this way just to help. If Jesus is not exclusively your peace, then he's not your peace. We seek to find peace in the things we can control. But according to this verse, it all ends up lost, faded, destroyed. The third thing is peace grows out of an eternal perspective. And that picks up in verse 20 of chapter 6. It says, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy. Where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If we store it here, the promise is this, lost, broken, faded, stolen. Nobody pursues that. We avoid that with everything in us. But store up in heaven where nothing, none of this will happen, you can, actually you cannot, will not be disappointed by that. Let me try to bring this full circle. Whenever you and I are anxious or stressed, it's never about the kingdom of God. We don't worry about God giving up on us. Maybe sometimes Satan will put a lie in our mind and say, you know, God, 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 God's not going to love you because of that. But we recognize the lie and we say, I know that's not true because God's never going to say, never mind, I washed my hand of all you sinners. He's never going to suddenly decide not to grant a person eternal life who responds to the gospel in faith. No, that's not his character. He can't deny his character. If he did, he would cease to be God. We don't stress about the kingdom of God. We simply, we simply stress about the things that aren't the kingdom of God. And by the way, according to these verses in Matthew, lost, faded, stolen. One more thing that I'll give you about the peace of God is that the peace of God is a gift from God. Philippians chapter 4 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So when we read Psalm 46, we see the character of God. God is our refuge. He is our strength. It is who He is. He is our ever-present help in trouble. It's who He is. 
When? Well, in Psalm 46, I gave you in the beginning the three places when nature rages. We've seen it in our world, and if you watch the news for more than two minutes, you're going to see nature raging. Call it what you want, but flooding, we've seen it in Finley. Earthquakes, if you've been anywhere, you've seen there's that volcanoes. All these things, nature rages. And then it picks up in verse 6, where in, in, in Psalm 46, where it talks about nations raging. Again, turn on the news for two minutes, you're going to see it. War, difficulties everywhere in the world. And in the last part of Psalm 46, it talks about our hearts raging. This is when God is our ever-present help in trouble as well. When our hearts are raging, not in an angry sense, but they may seem like an ocean of turmoil, the difficulties of life, of, of life around us, and they seem to bury us. God is our refuge, and we can rest in that. So what does it truly mean to be still? It means to allow slack. First of all, it's literally being still, and it's a very difficult posture, but a necessary one for us. Our world doesn't promote being still, being silent, sitting without any stimulants. Our earbuds in our ear or some sort of screen before our face, a book. Maybe the next step for you this week is to be still. Maybe this week you need to make the choice that you're actually going to stop and you're going to sit and you're going to be still before God, setting a pattern and a habit to physically be still. Set aside 30 minutes this week to actually do that, to stop and to be still, and maybe more to do it. No agenda, just in silence, listening to the Holy Spirit speak into you because He will. Secondly, in a very practical way, it means to allow some slack in your life the tension of controlling between us and God. And let me tell you, it's like tug of war, except God is not fighting us for control. He's asking us to surrender to Him, to drop the self-effort. And in this thread, maybe the next step for you this week is to pray that God will help you identify the areas of your life where you need to allow some slack. Stop trying to show that you have it all together. Stop putting on that strong face when you're clearly weak. Stop striving to manage your troubles, fix your problems, understand the things you can't understand, to sort it all out, to make it work. In other words, stop trying to be your own peace. Instead, be still and know. We're a people that are, not, that are familiar with stress and difficulty. And maybe today you know that God is your refuge and your strength but you find yourself working to manage your trouble. This verse is clear. Rest in him. He's got this, and he has got you. Maybe there's areas in your life where you need to pray. We actually believe prayer matters here at Lighthouse, and so we set up time at the end of every service where we have prayer partners that will be available to you. They'll be in the front corner and the back corners of this room here. And in just a minute, we're going to stand and we're going to sing one more song. And when we sing that song, I'm going to encourage you to get out of your seat and actually go to those prayer partners and let them pray with you and for you. Everybody needs prayer. There's no shame in it. I need prayer. You need prayer. Let's pray together. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me right now as we sing this one more song. And I'm going to pray with you. And here it is. Father, I pray that you will draw every person to, 
to yourself in this moment that needs prayer in this place. Lord, may their hearts be still and rest in you. Reach out and trust you right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about Lighthouse Community, check out our website at mylighthousecommunity.com or connect with us on Facebook. You're invited to join us live Sunday mornings at 909 or 1111. Thanks again for listening to the Lighthouse Community Podcast.